Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Back in the 1950s, a big change took hold here in California and across the country when it came to where we live. People fell in love with suburbia. It is now possible to have the individual styling every family wants in its home and still have all the benefits of mass production. World War II had just ended. The U.S. economy was doing great. Millions of soldiers returned home, leading to a baby boom. Home builders anticipated the needs of newlyweds and young families. They built new suburbs that appealed to countless first-time homebuyers. Up until then, about two-thirds of Americans lived in cities. But with the availability of new homes, at least for white buyers, many headed for the suburbs, eager to take advantage of this new lifestyle. At the center of the family activity area, an efficient kitchen saves countless steps and needless effort in the preparation and serving of meals. And all of this was made possible because of another big change, the interstate highway system. Most of these roads will be four, six, even eight-lane expressways constructed for through traffic. And these two ideas, suburbs and freeways, went hand in hand, creating new wealth, defining middle-class success. But today, we know those suburbs have a darker side. These days, the cars and trucks we drive account for nearly half of California's total carbon emissions. And bringing those emissions down is going to require more than just swapping out gas-guzzling cars for electric ones. It's going to mean redesigning our cities around people, not cars. I'm Susie Racho, and today on the California Report magazine, we're bringing you a story from KQED's podcast, Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. Housing reporter Aditi Banlamudi takes us to San Jose, a sprawling city built for cars, where local leaders are trying to rethink how residents live and how they get around. It's a warm evening, and I'm hanging out at the BART train station in San Jose. For the past few weeks, I've been looking to interview someone who thinks a lot about housing and public transit. And I keep striking out. Either people are too busy, or they see my big microphone and just walk the other way. But then I spot Monica Rivera. She rides into the station dressed all in black on a shiny gray bike. And she doesn't run away from me when I try to approach her. Honestly, I tell people, making your commute, either biking or walking, it makes such a big difference in how you feel throughout the day. She's still facing a 45-minute commute on the train, but she's so energetic. It makes you feel, like, more connected to the community, too, because you're, like, biking by businesses, you, like, are biking by your neighbors, and you just see more people, and when you're in the car, you're just, you're not as focused on, like, what's going on around you. 
A couple days a week, Monica wakes up at 5.30, bikes from her apartment to the train station, takes the train to San Jose, and then bikes to City Hall, where she helps manage the city's recycling program. It sounds like a lot to me. To me, it makes a big difference for the environment, knowing that I'm not putting all those like pollutants into the air every day. Monica and I are a lot alike. We're both 29 and recently married. We care about the environment and love being outside. And we both want to settle down in the same kind of house, in the same kind of neighborhood. I would want a home that's in a neighborhood that's walking distance to things. Like, we could go to a restaurant or a coffee shop or, like, a grocery store, you know, and be able to be within, like, a 10-minute walk. Um, Ideally, be close to whatever job I have. She and her husband have been trying to find that in the Bay Area. But homes in those kinds of neighborhoods are way out of her price range. The homes they can afford aren't much bigger than the studio apartment they're renting. If we buy a home, I don't want to go just from one tiny place to another tiny place. Buying a home is really important to Monica because of how she grew up. I grew up in a small, like with my family and my sibling, um, like a tiny two-bedroom house that they were renting. So she and her husband started looking for a place to buy. I wanted to prove to myself, you know, that I could reach that. After months of house hunting, she found a home in Lathrop, about a two-hour's drive from San Jose in California's Central Valley. It's three bedrooms, two baths. It has a nice backyard, has some grass, um, some trees and plants. We have an orange tree and a lemon tree, which is really nice. She said it was a relief to finally sign the papers. It felt good. Yeah, it felt really good. I mean, I've been saving for years now and, like, just all of the sacrifices that we've made. But she had to compromise. Because biking to work and walking around her neighborhood, she can't really do that in Lathrop. Nothing is within walking distance. Even being able to go to, like, a coffee shop in the morning or if you forget something at the store, you have to get in the car to go. When she did live in the Bay Area, she loved going to the city every day or to the beach on the weekends. Now it's like to reach any of those destinations, I have to add like an hour, which is a small price to pay. You know, like you need to make sacrifices, but it's still just something that I'm going to have to get used to. Another thing she's getting used to, the heat. For the past few years, Lathrop has seen record high temperatures in the summer. And soon after they moved in, Monica got COVID. I was sick in 100-degree heat. We, like, didn't have blinds on our windows yet, and it was just a nightmare. I'm not used to it. Here's the paradox. Cities like Lathrop are one of the few places in California where housing is being built, housing that's affordable for people like Monica. But at the same time, temperatures in California's Central Valley are soaring higher and higher each summer. Lathrop wasn't Monica's first choice. She was really hoping to find a place where she could keep riding her bike and taking the train. But with what she could afford, Lathrop felt like her only choice. Why why are, are, is our society, like, encouraging this or allowing it to happen? This is an urgent problem. As the housing crisis pushes people further away from big cities, they drive more and emit more carbon. That makes climate change worse. So instead of continuing to sprawl, why not build more homes in the city, close to public transit and in neighborhoods where people could walk more? I used to live in San Jose, so when I heard the city was trying to make this a reality, I was really curious about it. 
Before I moved there from the East Coast, I had this image of a bustling metropolis, but it's actually pretty quiet. A lot of people live there, but they're all spread out. So what would it mean if the city made good on this promise? I'd love to just sort of get a lay of the land, like what, you know, yeah. what it's going to look it's a like one day. To see from here. Eric Shanauer points to an old wooden fence surrounding a big vacant lot. And, and, and what is inside of the site right now? Like it's, what's it's just trucks and uh, equipment. Eric's technical title is land use consultant. For the past 20 years, he's been working with developers and the city to build more housing in San Jose. And he wants to transform this area into a thriving urban neighborhood. High-density housing, high-density jobs, retail, parks, mixed-use neighborhoods. Three years ago, Bart opened a train station nearby, where I met Monica. And the city figured it would be the perfect place for more housing. We have to, everywhere, make cities that are not reliant on fossil fuels to get around. This is all part of San Jose's larger goal to combat sprawl. More than 10 years ago, city officials noticed that too many people were getting priced out. City workers had commutes up to two hours long. So they came up with a plan to build 60 urban villages across San Jose. State Assembly member Ash Kalra represents the city and was one of the loudest advocates for the plan. Here he is selling the idea in a promotional video. Urban villages have a lot of benefits. First of all, by bringing uh, people together, both in terms of their housing and their jobs and the stores and restaurants they go to, you're being much more efficient with your use of land. Imagine tall apartment buildings with shops on the bottom and a train line running through the middle. A pedestrian's paradise. This new housing would be a big change for San Jose. It's the 12th largest city in the country, but it feels like a giant suburb. All the homes are spread out. And that's because of its history. Between the 1950s and 1970s, highway expansion set the tone for city planning. Sam Asifa runs California's Office for Planning and Research. That's basically the state's own think tank to solve its toughest problems, like sprawl. Sprawl was literally on steroids, with single-family developments quickly gobbling up farmland, open space, and spreading out. In the early 1900s, San Jose was a small city of only 17 square miles. Today, it's 181 square miles, and most of it is dominated by single-family homes, a house that's home to only one family. This is the American dream, and we know that single-family homes generally perpetuate sprawl. More than 90% of San Jose's land is zoned for single-family homes. For decades, it was illegal to build other kinds of housing, like apartments or duplexes, in most of the city. That history created a lot of housing inequity. Starting in the early 1950s, white families were moving into San Jose, from bigger cities like San Francisco and Oakland. Fair housing laws hadn't been passed yet, so a lot of the new homes were off-limits to practically anyone who wasn't white. Scars from that history are still visible today. Black and Latinx residents of San Jose are far less likely to own their homes than white and Asian residents. San Jose wants to right some of those wrongs, and the urban villages could help. They're supposed to include some affordable housing, bring more jobs, and give more people the opportunity to live here. But this whole urban village dream is really slow going. 
It's been more than 10 years since San Jose officials said they wanted urban villages all over the city. So far, only a handful have been built. There's already part of an urban village next to the BART station. There's a tall apartment building with hundreds of units. But walking around that area... Okay, so I just had to cross a one, two, three, four, five, six lane road to get to the other side. It's just not that easy. This is one obstacle San Jose is up against. It's trying to build a pedestrian-friendly neighborhood in a place planned around cars. Sidewalks run alongside the apartment building, but it's just not very welcoming to walk next to a busy road. There is a Safeway and a Dunkin' Donuts, but you have to cross a huge parking lot and another four-lane road to get there. The apartment building was built with shop and restaurant space on the ground floor to make it more convenient and interesting to live here. But it's mostly vacant. That's partly because demand is down post-pandemic. There's barely anyone walking around. I finally run into Juan Carlos Navarro. He lives in a townhome a few blocks away and is out with his dogs. I'm so excited to see someone, I'm fumbling over myself. How do you feel about all of this new development coming and the... Let me call you back, okay? Oh, sorry. He says this area used to be a bit of a ghost town, but that's starting to change. We definitely like it because it's, uh, we feel better, we feel secure now walking around the block because this was all empty before and it, was, and it wasn't as secure as it is now. So mm-hmm. we definitely like it. He hopes it becomes more lively as more housing gets built and more shops get filled. I hope to see more people, more, you know, entertainment areas, stores, and I will hope to see that. As San Jose tries to make good on its urban village promise, it's kind of handcuffed by some of its own policies. And you can see it in plans for Eric Shainauer's development. He has a vision for tall apartment buildings, but what's the first thing he's going to build? Single family and townhomes. Yeah. The first thing Eric is going to build is more standalone houses. That's because the neighborhood around the empty lot is already full of single-family homes. And city policy doesn't allow tall buildings to be built right next to them because it might cast a shadow. So Eric has to build a buffer. Put a row of lower-density housing units up against the existing single-family and put the taller buildings more internal on the site. Cities across California have laws like these, which protect single-family homes and prevent denser housing, like apartments or condos, from being built nearby. What's more, apartment buildings are riskier because developers have to build the whole thing before they can rent or sell any of the units. Whereas single-family and townhomes, you can build and sell as you go. Even though the city wants to see more dense development, they're not the ones building it. It's up to developers. And it has to make sense to their bottom line. Right now, it doesn't. Interest rates and construction costs have soared, and there's less demand for office and retail space. Eric hopes another developer will eventually build the apartments, but he's uncertain as to when that might happen. I believe it's an inevitable evolution to move towards denser, more mixed-use development. It's all evolving in the right direction, but it takes time. Evolution takes a long time. It's just waiting. I mean, everyone's waiting. There's no, it's not happening. Kelly Snyder has been living in San Jose since 1999. 
She teaches real estate development at San Jose State and is really frustrated with the city's progress on their urban village plan. She thinks there's a different way to get more housing built. I meet her in a quiet neighborhood filled with small bungalows, each with their own front lawn. So where are we, where are we right now? We are in downtown San Jose, outskirts of downtown San Jose. It's a little brown house with bright blue accents around the windows. It's got three bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a big backyard. At the end of the block, there's a train station where you can catch a ride to downtown San Jose. We have a fantastic public elementary school on this corner, big public park with one of This house is Kelly's pilot project. She bought it from Raul Lozano, a local activist who wanted to see more housing built here. He wanted to split his home into two separate units, but was struggling with the process. And at the same time, Kelly, who's an experienced developer, wanted to help. This front unit is a one bedroom. So it's got a living room and a nice kitchen, a full bathroom, and then a nice bedroom. And we charge $1,500 a month for this, and that includes utilities. $1,500 for all that is a steal in the Bay Area. And Kelly didn't stop there. She also built a small two-bedroom house in the backyard, where Raul lived until he passed away in February. It's now home to two of Raul's friends who are dealing with housing insecurity. They would often, you know, spend time with family in the valley and then sleep in their cars one or two nights a week here. We approached the mother and said, would you like to move into this house? And she said yes, and she and her son live here now. That small house is technically called an ADU, or Accessory Dwelling Unit. You might know it as a granny flat or a casita, and it's the hottest thing in California housing. Recent state and local laws have made them easier to build. There are even grant programs that will cover some of the costs. And San Jose has really embraced them. Last year, the city issued over 500 permits to build new ADUs. There's still some space on Kelly's lot, and she wants to build a duplex there. So even more homes on a plot of land that used to have just one. Kelly knows there are skeptics. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this is because every time I bring someone here, they're like, well, that's just a tiny little lot. You can't fit a whole new house on there. And I'm like, oh, I can fit a whole house on there. Even if she can build it, not everyone wants it. Many of the people who moved to San Jose came for the backyard and the quiet neighborhood with tree-lined streets. But Kelly wants to show people you can still have that and add more housing. After buying Raul's place, she formed a company to help more people split their homes. And everyone who comes to see it says, oh, I didn't know it would look this nice. I didn't know you could fit all of this. And for what it's worth, it doesn't feel crowded. This is still a quiet street, and there isn't a tall building in sight. Kelly thinks San Jose is moving in the right direction with ADUs and just needs to keep making it cheaper and easier to build them. They know the knob to switch and they've already started twisting it. They just need to twist it further. I know I've been picking on San Jose, but the thing is, it's like a lot of cities in California. They were all built on an idea that sounded great at the time. A spacious home with a yard of your own, a car that could take you anywhere. But that idea has led California into its housing and climate crisis. So maybe it's time to embrace some new ideas for how our cities are built and how we'll create a sustainable future. It might mean living closer to each other, driving less, walking more. And if you ask me, that actually sounds pretty great.
That was KQED's Aditi Banlamudi. She produced this story for the podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, hosted by Aaron Baldessari. Next week, we've got another great episode for you about the connection between driving and sprawl from our friends at KPBS in San Diego. We'll go back in time for a history lesson on how our network of urban freeways came to be such a defining part of life in California cities. And now we're heading to East Hollywood for the final installment of our series, Flavor Profile, about Californians who pivoted to start food businesses during the pandemic. Now, many chefs will tell you that their cooking reflects the food they grew up eating, food shared on holidays or at family parties. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi introduces us to a chef cooking up Vietnamese comfort food inspired by her family's recipes. She's also trying to build a business where everyone feels equal. So I just want, like, some of this mixed in with, like, some of the shrimp. We're on the border of East Hollywood and Silver Lake in Los Angeles in the kitchen at Bea U, a Vietnamese takeout restaurant. Chef Wen Lei is preparing lemongrass skewers with one of her cooks. So you still kind of have, like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't want it to turn into, like, total mush. Wen's love of cooking goes back to childhood. In 1991, when she was seven, she immigrated with her family from Saigon to Southern California. My aunt and uncle picked us up from LAX. And I remember um, it was the first time, you know, I'd ever been on a freeway and it was nighttime. I remember it very vividly. And we were in traffic and just seeing the red kind of brake lights on our side and across the freeway, just all these white lights and just being like, where am I? Transitioning to life in the U.S. wasn't easy. Uwen and her family had to quickly pick up the English language. But despite the struggles, it was a time she remembers fondly. I really, I don't think, understood that, you know, like the challenges that my parents were facing. I, I remember just thinking like, oh, wow, this is so fun to have your family around you all the time. It's just like in Vietnam. Food was always part of her life growing up in West Covina. I have just these core memories of food and what motivates me to cook food. And it's definitely family gatherings. It's definitely like, and and when I say family gathering, I'm saying like at a minimum 50 people. And if like the family members bring their friends, then that's a hundred plus. And that's like every weekend or every other weekend, there's one family that's kind of hosting this. Although many of her early food memories come from her mom, Uwen says it's actually a dish her uncle made that still resonates with her to this day. It's called mi wang. So it's a specialty type of rice noodle kind of thick broth soup that comes from the Da Nang region, um, from the Wang Nam region. You know, I remember him just kind of like putting all of these things together and getting exactly the right texture. And it's inside of me now. But Nguyen's passion for food and cooking would have to wait. During her final year at UC Berkeley in 2005, she traveled to the Gulf Coast, where she helped the Vietnamese community recover from Hurricane Katrina. Then she took a job at the UCLA Labor Center, where she felt she could make a difference for workers' rights in L.A. But after a decade of community organizing, she started to get burned out, and so she quit her position with an electrician's union 
to pursue her culinary dreams. I started my cooking career in my early 30s, so I felt like I needed to maybe catch up a little bit. So I went to culinary school and baking and pastry school, kind of like six-month intensive programs for each to try to just get some of the more basic commercial kitchen skills. She would go on to work as a private chef and took jobs catering before working in the busy kitchens of big restaurants like Button Mash in Los Angeles and Casilla in Santa Monica. The initial plan was to open her own Vietnamese restaurant sometime in 2022. But during the pandemic, an opportunity arose she couldn't pass up. This location um, became available in the middle of 2020, and I used to live in this neighborhood, and I just love it so much. Nguyen says once the space became available, it sped up her timeline. Even though there was tremendous apprehension about the risk of opening a restaurant in the middle of a global pandemic, she decided with a space in place, it was the right time to make the jump. So Bayau opened its doors in February of 2021. The menu is focused on Vietnamese comfort food, dishes like banh mi, caramelized pork and eggs, spring rolls, and rice noodle plates. Vietnamese food is food that comes from a person's heart. Part of my meaning on the integrity of the food is that it's something that I would present to my family. Uh, may I get the uh, chicken rice porridge, please? Okay. Because the space and, uh, is extremely small, Wen has kept Beiu as a takeout-only restaurant, so she doesn't serve pho, for example. She does include weekend specials on her menu, crowdsourcing recipes from relatives. Which cousin is the best at the crispy pork skin? Let me reach out to her, like, which auntie knows how to make these handmade noodles the best? And she wanted to draw on another part of her background, her experience as a labor organizer. Workplace equality was a key issue for Uwen when she opened Beiu. But despite efforts to pay her small staff a living wage with benefits, it's all been a huge challenge. The pressure is very intense. I've been able to pay my staff. Um, you know, I've been able to pay my rent. And I've got some vendors who are nice, who are willing to kind of like extend credit out a little bit longer. And even though she would love to provide health benefits for her employees, she still can't afford it. Inflation has increased the cost of all the ingredients she uses at the restaurant. There have been supply chain problems. Rent remains expensive in Los Angeles. It all led to making a difficult decision. I had to raise the prices. I had a lot of heartburn around it because I, I do want to keep things affordable in the rent-controlled neighborhood. I do see that this is a time when a lot of other people are struggling. The pandemic highlighted age-old questions that so many restaurant owners face. Should we raise prices and possibly turn off customers? How do we pay employees more livable wages? And how do we survive to turn a profit? Uwen is determined to keep cooking up her popcorn chicken and rice porridge in a place employees want to come to work. That was the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi with the final installment of our Flavor Profile series, featuring Californians who switched gears to launch successful food businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find all of our Flavor Profile stories at californiareport.org.
The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio. Victoria Malion is our senior editor, with editing help this week from Sasha Koka. The editors of Sold Out are Erica Kelly and Kevin Stark. We had production help from Jessica Carissa. Brendan Willard is our engineer, and our intern is Lucen Mendel. And I'm Susie Rocho, in for Sasha Koka. You can catch more California stories on our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.